Here goes nothing. This episode is sponsored by Hire.com. Hire.com is offering a new freelancing and contracting offering. They have multiple companies that will provide you with contract opportunities. They cover all the tracking, reporting, and billing for you. They handle all the collections and pre-fund your paycheck. They offer legal and accounting and tax support. And they'll give you $2,000 when you've been on a contract for 90 days. But with this link, they'll double it to $4,000 instead. Go sign up at Hire.com slash Freelancer Show. This episode is sponsored by Nerd.us. Do you wish that somebody else would handle all of those operation details when it comes to hosting your client's web applications? Nerd.us is a Ruby on Rails managed hosting designed to make your life easy. They migrate everything for you, and new signups or referrals come with a $100 discount or a referral fee. To sign up, go to freelancershow.com slash nerd. That's freelancershow.com slash N-I-R-D, and enter freelancer into the contact form for a discount. If you're someone who runs your own service-based business, then spending less time on pesky admin tasks means having more time to focus on your client's work, which is why you need to give FreshBooks a try. FreshBooks is the invoicing solution that makes it incredibly simple to create and send invoices, track your time, and manage your expenses. It allows you to quickly see and track the status of your invoices, expenses, and projects, and allows you to keep track of your expense receipts in FreshBooks. For your free 30-day trial, go to freshbooks.com slash freelancers and enter the Freelancer Show in the How Did You Hear About Us section when signing up. This week's episode of the Freelancer Show is brought to you by Earth Class Mail. Earth Class Mail moves your stale mail into the cloud, giving you instant access 24-7 and integrates with the tools and services you use every day. It's crazy that we've moved everything we do for the business over to the digital world, but still need to pick up, sort, and manage physical mail. With Earth Class Mail, you can get all of your mail scanned and accessible online 24-7. You can search your mail, send invoices over to your accounting software, sync important documents into cloud storage, deposit checks, and really just make running your business a whole lot easier. You also get real professional address to share publicly with customers, business partners, and investors. And you'll never need to worry about someone showing up at your door if you run your business from home. Visit freelancershow.com slash mail and you'll get your first month of service free when you sign up. That's freelancershow.com slash mail. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 185 of The Freelancer Show. This week on our panel, we have Reuven Lerner. Hey, everyone. And Charles Maxwood from DevChat.tv. I'm going to take a minute since it's just the two of us and plug Freelance Remote Comp. Jonathan, Reuven, I think Curtis is going to speak. Brendan Dunn's going to be speaking. A bunch of other folks. I'm trying to remember who all we got that committed. But, yeah, we got got a whole list. Uh, Philip speaking. Josh Earl and Derek Bailey are speaking, Matt Inglot is speaking, and we're reaching out to a bunch more folks. So, oh, and Marcus Blankenship's also speaking. So, anyway, if you're interested in that conference, uh, you want to kind of level up your freelancing, go check it out. Uh, we also have Jonathan Stark. Hello. <laughs> and this just in. <laughs> <laughs> Calendar snafu. All right. Well, this week we decided we were going to talk about training, like doing corporate training. Yeah. So, well, I don't know. You you want to talk about it some more? You want me to talk about it a little bit? Well, um, so how do you want to structure this? I've done it a couple of times. I know Jonathan's gone in and, as part of his consulting, has applied his expertise to helping companies. I don't know if he's done like direct developer training or not. Yes, uh, I've done quite a bit. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, I think so. So, uh, how do you get into the sort of corporate training gig arena? For me, it was very gradual and in many ways a happy accident. I mean, the story is basically that, so I've been, I've been doing consulting for like 20 years now. 
And um, when I first came to Israel in 95, I told people I do Linux and Perl and web stuff. And so I'd go to companies and help them out. And um, like at some point, some companies, I think it was Checkpoint was the first one, where they said, hey, it's great that you can do this stuff. Can you come and teach us how to do it? I was like, sure. So it started off with like, you know, once a year, twice a year, companies would call me in to help them out, basically have them learn to do what I do. And little by little, companies started to ask me to do this more and more. The big jump was about six years ago when I hooked up with a training company here in Israel, where that's all they do. And they have all their trainers are freelancers. And so they're always looking for people to sort of join their stable of trainers. Um, and I was with them for, I guess, like five years or so. And about eight months ago, 10 months ago, I told them, you know what, I'm, I'm going to go back to doing this on my own. So I guess for like close to 20 years now, I've been doing corporate training, but I really fell into it sort of through the consulting. And it's only now that I sort of see it from the reverse side, which is like, I'm primarily doing the training and less doing consulting. Mm -hmm. um, but like, how do you get into it? Look, what I tell people is that these companies, especially the big companies, they want to do training, right? They have a budget for it. They have management structures for it. And from their perspective, this is a, a perk that they give their employees to ensure that they stick around and make them more productive. So they are looking for trainers who will come in and make the people more productive on topics that are of interest to them. And it's already budgeted. So the key thing is sort of getting in touch with them and the training manager is like the main point of contact there saying, I've got something that's going to improve you, your company and improve your developers' lives. And if you can sort of get over that marketing hump and get over, like get in there, then you're basically set because if a company is happy with you, they will just invite you back at infinitum. Hmm. Yeah. The, the one company I did training at was a smaller company and it seems like they kind of bring in a different person from the community every year to do some of the training. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm also not completely convinced that they applied a lot of the training that I did for them. They acted like they were happy with it, but I don't know how much value they really got out of it. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's, it's sometimes hard to get a read on it, right? Like, I mean, so I I just, um, I mean, every time, so, well, some, I should say, sometimes it's very, very obvious to me that things are going well. And when things are going really poorly, that's usually pretty obvious too. But most times, obviously, it's like in the middle. Then you're like, well... How many people really liked it? How many people really disliked it? How many people, even if they disliked it, got something out of it? And that's where it's it's hard. And that's where like having the training manager on your side and being in your corner can really help. Because if they like like you, and if they then they'll move mountains for you and they'll say, Oh, well, we understand that the results of your, you know, because there's always a questionnaire at the end. What did you think of the training? Right. Some companies have it really long and some companies have it really short. And if the questionnaire is bad. The training manager will say, oh, we understand this group was like this, or this was just a pilot, or it was a bad day. Like, they'll come up with all the excuses necessary to sort of help you through and make it better next time around, which is great. And I mean, obviously, everyone wants to improve for next time around. But if they don't like you, or if they don't care about you, or if they have, like, someone else who's cheaper whom they're rooting for anyway, then you're toast, right? There's nothing you can do about it. Yeah. What, what's your experience been, Jonathan? It seems like uh, you sort of go out and... Uh, market yourself as an expert in mobile tech. And so people will bring you in to do that because they know they need it as opposed to where Reuven's kind of cultivated relationships with training managers and finds out what they need and then offers it to them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, thinking back on it, I've been doing training since 2003 in various different disciplines. Uh, and I'm trying to think back to how I got into each different one. Cause I've done about six different kinds that might be of interest to people. Uh, the first one was when I was doing FileMaker. Uh, I was a fairly well-known FileMaker 
uh, developer. It's a small community. And I worked with one of the biggest firms in this space. And FileMaker itself, the, the company, FileMaker Inc., had a certification, a training certification program. So you go to this train the trainers thing once a year and uh, learn the materials that they had created. And you, you know, you, you were listed as a certified trainer and I flew around and you know, maybe I did, I'm going to say I probably did a half a dozen of those, uh, over the course of two years. And they were super corporate. Like it would be pretty decent sized companies. Like Apple was one of them. And you'd go in and there'd be a classroom situation that the, the customer had set up. And usually like a big company, they'd have a conference room with, you know, the whole setup ready to go. And, you know, you'd teach a class. It was like a school type of class. And it was the way I did. I, how did I personally get into it? I guess I was just, you know, the owner of the company knew I was good and at, at the skill and that I was into teaching people about it. So it just sort of naturally happened. Uh, it made it really easy that FileMaker had that program set up. So it was a real no brainer. And I got a lot of experience, you know, how to give live demos and that kind of thing. To take the complete flip side of that, uh, once I got, uh, once I wrote my iPhone book, which is like very mobile development focused, you know, building I, iPhone apps with HTML, CSS, and JavaScript, which is kind of like a phone gap book for web developers, I put on my own training classes, mostly remote. You know, so kind of like uh, I just put a sign up form on my page. I tweet about it and get signups and then basically do like a webinar. Uh, but it was to be like two full days and uh, I would just teach, you know, maybe a half a dozen people uh, from my basement, you know, about, uh, you know, clients that I got myself, you know, not corporate at all. The polar opposite was like uh, usually indie developers who would come in there. Uh, so those were like the two massive ends of the spectrum for me and in, in uh i guess in the middle i've done some more like one-off corporate or college type trainings where people uh again i think primarily through the book uh the iphone book people you know some colleges have it on their curriculum and they'll just reach out to me and say hey could you come down and give a class and you know i'll, I'll go and do like uh, a day or two day class that would be attended by anywhere from 10 to a hundred people. And, you know, something I totally manage myself. It's not really, uh, it's not a corporate thing. It's not through O'Reilly or anything like that. So that's kind of in the middle. Uh, and I've, I've even done variations on all three of those themes. So I guess how, how would people get into doing that if they want to, I guess the main thing, I mean, Ruben's approach is probably the best in terms of recurring revenue, you know, uh, getting repeat business and that sort of thing. But it's probably pretty, I'm guessing it's pretty tricky to get into those hiring managers. I know I, so, I did some classes for Maricana, which is uh, like an open source training company that eventually got bought by Twitter. But they were pretty protective about their relationship with the customers. So I didn't have a ton of interaction with like the buyer in those gigs. Uh, I would just be doing a, re a remote training with sort of like a coordinator from the client. And I didn't really have access to the, the, um, the buyer at the client. So it would have been, I would have had to be a little, would have had to throw some hustle on to <laughs> find out who that was. Right. I mean, I, I was sort of lucky that I, um, I mean, when, so when, when I told the trading company that I was not going to be working with them anymore, I mentioned this to a few of the companies that I'd been training. I was like, listen, I'm going to be working with them anymore. 
And they said, oh, well, can we work with you directly? Which was, of course, my the point in my telling them this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was like, oh, sure. But then I started getting calls from other companies saying, we want to do a course with you. And I said, look, just to be honest, so you know, I'm not doing it through that trading company anymore. And they said, we know. Everyone knows. So I don't know. <laughs> like, like, I don't know who's been talking. I don't know, like, what happened. But basically, like, I've been doing so much training for a while that there were companies that were just sort of looking for me. And I think when the training company says it's not available, they sort of said, well, we'll just reach out to it. It's not hard to do. But like the thing is, I also try, I mean, in terms of marketing, I, I have tried hard, especially in the last, say, six months, increase my sort of image and my marketing as this is what I do. This is my niche. This is what I deal with primarily. I change my website. All the things that I do online, I advertise myself. Like I, in LinkedIn, I now say I do training in the following technologies around the world. And I've been pleasantly surprised to find how many people have sort of read that and picked up on it. Just just yesterday, literally, I got email from someone via LinkedIn who I met like four years ago. I was thinking, who do, who is this guy? Where do I know him from? And I had to even look up to see where I knew him from. And he said, we really need some training in such and such in Silicon Valley. Can you come? I said, well, yeah, I'd love to. How's August? And like, basically, the good news is that if you have even, I would say, like four or five corporate clients, they love to do scheduling far in advance. Mm-hmm. And so you can really book a long time in advance. The bad news is that that gives you less flexibility for the smaller clients who who are not able to schedule so far in advance. Right. So I guess the next question I have, because I've been looking at this, I don't know if I want to do it like all the time, but it would be nice to go and do some in-person training a couple of times a year, uh, you know, maybe once every month or two or three. Um, but I, I look at it and I'm like, okay, so let's say that I have some in right with some company. And I can get to their training person. Should I have specific things to offer them or should I talk to them to find out what they need? Uh, what, what's the best approach there? Because it seems like some people are like, well, we need training on testing. What do you have on testing? And of course, I just pulled something out of the air and said, well, I do a course that, that covers this, 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 and this. I mean, that's what I did last time. And they're like, they're like, yeah, that's what we want. And then they hired me and then I put it together and went and presented it. But it seems like other people, you know, they go out and they want to see the list of your offerings and then pick the one that makes the most sense to them. Look, the key document in a lot of this is going to be the syllabus. And that's, it's, it's sort of like a contract, right? Where it's, it's the starting point for negotiations. Mm-hmm. So what often happens is a company will say, you know, do you offer Python training? Python is the thing I probably do like 80% of my training in. Um, so say, do you do Python? I say, well, I have these two courses, like the standard ones, each of them four days, intro and advanced. Take a look at the curricula, but we can mix and match and change things as necessary. And if there's something that, that you need that's not on there, then that's definitely doable. Let's talk about that. And that gives them sort of a nice combination of something to look at that they can pass around to their developers and they get feedback on. Then they'll come back to me and say, we really like A, B, and C. We need that. We do not need DEF. And can you also add G? Mm-hmm. But like they, they need some sort of syllabus. They need some sort of document as a starting point. So I think like you can then sort of play it both ways. This is the standard thing, and I can do extra stuff for you. Yeah, I did something similar where I would have, I think I had nine different modules, and you could opt to have a crash course or a deep dive on each module. And I could fit, I basically broke the day into 90-minute sections, so you could fit in four 90-minute things. So if you wanted to do 
like, uh, I don't know, CSS animation, a deep dive on CSS animations that would take uh, the entire morning. And then if you wanted to do like, um, I don't know, like client side storage and offline caching, you could do crash courses on, t- on those two things in the afternoon. So there's basically like I would set it up. So there are four segments, time segments of the day, and you could fill them however you wanted with mm. the uh, with each topic. So it gave a lot of flexibility and there were certain ones I, I could have actually removed a bunch. There was a bunch that uh, there were maybe four or five that literally nobody ever wanted. <laughs> so I probably could have removed those. It was pretty clear what, what things people were most interested in, or at least having the hardest time learning on their own. Right. That's also a key factor. Like a lot of clients, potential clients will say, well, well, first of all, they'll say our people are very smart. They don't need anything introductory and, 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 and don't give them the syntax. I'm like, okay, first of all, smart or not smart, it doesn't ma- matter. Like, my thing here is, if you're bringing me in just to teach them syntax and sort of read through the manual, then we're doing something terribly wrong. But the added value that I'm bringing is I give them the perspective they need, and I help them just sort of jumpstart their learning that would be faster and more effective than they can do just everyone reading through a manual in parallel. But they will very often say, you know, we, we only need advanced stuff, or we need this, or we need that. And sometimes I have to give them pushback and say, look, there's just no way around it. We need to discuss X, Y, Z they won't get it because it's just very confusing. And sometimes they believe me and sometimes they don't. Yeah, I think it's that's a huge value add, I think, of having an uh, in-person or even remote um, access to an instructor is to be able to get the why, not the how. You know, so like people, it was really, it'd be really common for me to present a concept or a technique and then all the questions would be around like, when would I use that? Or, mm-hmm. you know, I've got this particular app I'm working on. How would I make that work here? And the application of the knowledge was, I mean, to me, it seems obvious that that's the most valuable part because, yeah, you could just read the book. There's, I mean, there's a whole internet of information on how to do Python, you know, or React right. or whatever. There's a million tutorials, but, you know, do you want, I think you can drastically increase your maturity level with the technology if you have an experienced person that you can ask, you know, questions directly to. Yeah. So, so one of my favorite things to do is like tell them, I did this. It was a big mistake. Don't do that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I think All they also they love gotchas. That. Yeah, they right. love gotchas. By the way, John, so Jonathan, I'm curious about these courses you've given. Like, I've started doing some training online, but it's still been to companies, and mm-hmm. I've been playing with the idea of doing, uh, like, you know, announcing to my mailing list or or elsewhere that I'm going to do training online. How, how did that work for you? How did how did you market that? Because that's something I haven't tried yet. I've done a bunch of variations. So through Americana, I did a bunch of online training uh, for some huge companies more more like what you typically do and you know it was like a typical webex where i had you know i'd have sections and this is the topic i'm going to cover in the in the section and here's a, a poll at the end where they do like a little quiz and stuff like that it was very very corporate and structured and on the flip side when i would just do my own it was more like you were kind of hanging out with me and it was very qa focused uh, where I would I would just do like a join me screen sharing type of thing and, you know, have maybe six people in there. And I would say, OK, I've got the, you know, broke this stuff's broken out of modules. I expect, yeah, I left the audio stream open. I was like, you guys all manage your own mute button. If you have a question, just unmute yourself and ask me a question. And it was much more freewheeling and sort of wasn't unstructured, but it allowed people to get their questions answered more quickly and i think it was much more engaging because you know people there were more conversations so people you know if bob asked me a question it might be the case that the five other people had a similar question or it was beneficial to everyone and mm-hmm. 
I, I'm a huge, I love Q and A. I love doing Q and A with stuff like this. So, and how did you find, how do those people find you? How did you announce the, the course? Yeah. yeah I, th- with that particular course, I, uh, set up a sales page. It was pretty long mm-hmm. and involved. And it's, and then I announced it on Twitter and I did one video of probably the most popular section. And I just posted it on YouTube. It was like a 90 minute video of me explaining how to, I think it was how to get phone gaps set up or something like that. Hmm. And I set up this thing on that page called tweet to pay or pay with a tweet or something like that. And you could download the video for free if you tweeted about the course. And I also got a lot of great feedback about that particular video. So people were like, oh, man, you know, at first they'd tweet about it. Then they'd watch the video and be like, wow, this video was great. And they'd tweet about it again. But it was it was purely a Twitter thing. I didn't buy any ads or anything like that. And this is going this is probably I want to say it was like 2011 when I did this. So it's been a while. And uh, I in 2012, I sort of, uh, I had the page hidden and I turned it back on on my site. No one was really interested. I didn't, you know, the, so I don't know if the, it's probably that the content that I had, uh, which was updated, but is just less cool now, you know, so like the idea of phone gap is less novel than it was three years ago or four years ago. And people's interest has web developers, which are my target, are interested in much different things than they are, were a few years ago. Now it's all about, you know, workflow automation and frameworks, you know, so now it's all about like Angular, Ember, React, Gulp, NPM, like Node, all, all that stuff. So the, the, uh, so when I turned that page back on maybe a year later, I got zero reaction, no traction whatsoever. And I don't know if that's because. I don't know if that's because the marketing approach that I took the first time just doesn't work anymore or people were not interested in the subject matter anymore or some combination of the two. So just sort of a cautionary tale to people in the audience. If you take the exact same steps that I just described, it may or may not work for you. Uh, but it did work. It worked great for me. Like I could basically, I could basically send out a tweet and make like 5,000 bucks the next week, you know, by teaching wow. a class. So it was when it worked, it was great. So, you know, and I've done all sorts of, I think probably these days, the way I would market it is more like webinars, which I've done tons and tons of webinars through O'Reilly and they do a great job marketing the webinars. So I'll do like a topic of, you know, will be a typical topic like uh like responsive web design boot camp and i'd go on for 60 minutes and i'd you know there'd be like a thousand people on the webinar and i'd run through my example files and my slides if i had any slides usually i like live code and uh you know get to the end ask q a people would tweet about it like crazy and if i was pushing training which i'm really not anymore so if i was though i would say hey if you want a full day of this uh, or you want the other three modules of this go to this page and sign up there. I think webinars are probably the the way to go these days for getting signups and creating awareness and that sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, I, I do like a webinar every probably like month and a half, two months now, just a free webinar, basically to do that exactly that, raise awareness. What do I do? What's my style? Because if, if someone hates my style, then they're going to hate my, like if they hate the webinar, they're going to hate my classes even more. Yes. But if they like the style, then, you know, well, they can get more of that. And I definitely say that's another way that I've sort of made it clear, this is what I do. This is what I want to do. I can help you with this. Um, and, and, they're, and they're fun. They're fun. And they allow me to test out new material before I give it an actual classes. Agreed. I figure people are coming for free. <laughs> so they can't expect that much. If it's really terrible, just take it off of YouTube. And I can sort of get it a little smoother before it's ready to go. Yeah, I totally agree. Chuck mentioned earlier that he, that he kind of dabbles or has dabbled in training. And you mentioned that you kind of went all in. 
And I found that probably the third reason why I, I didn't have much success when I tried to reopen the training page just for like a couple of months is that it's not that easy to dabble in anything. I think it's really helpful to take the plunge and really go all in on something. It makes it so much easier for people to kind of position you in their mind to sort of pigeonhole you as the Python trainer guy. And if that's what all your marketing is around, it just totally supports it, it makes it easier for you to create a body of work, get amazing testimonials, et cetera, et cetera. It all creates this virtuous cycle. And if you're kind of dabbling in it, then it's much trickier because it's like, wait a second, uh, you know, Stark, you did strategy and consulting and training and, and development. And wait, what do you do? You know? So I really, you know, decided to focus on just pure consulting and not do training anymore. Right. Although, I mean, I think a lot of people just dabble in it. And it's the sort of thing where if you can get, because again, like it's possible to get a limited number of clients like, let's say you have two clients and they just want a course every two months, right? So, so if they're willing to sort of stick with you and if they're loyal to you, you can totally pull that off. But getting those clients right might be a little more difficult if people aren't 100% sure if that's what you do and the only thing you do. Mm -hmm. But I mean, the, the training world is a very big, open and fluid and companies are always looking for stuff. So they might well be okay with, you know, you doing other things as, as long as they know that you're good at what you do. And yeah, like getting yeah. in the door, that can sometimes be a little tricky. Well, the other thing that occurs to me, especially in my case, is that if I want to line up training gigs, I can go on my podcast on JavaScript or Ruby and say, hey, look, I've got this going on and reach, you know, several thousand people and try and fill a handful of slots. Right. Or That's I can exactly. go on my mailing list and I can do the same thing. So I don't have to have everybody know. I just have to have enough people know. Yeah, that's a good point. You get a big audience and it's the exact audience that you need, you know, so that's super helpful. When I was doing it, I was really just I pretty much just active on Twitter. I wasn't really podcasting. Uh, I really didn't try that hard to market it. So perhaps I would have had more luck if I was, you know, if I was in a situation like that. Probably it's pretty safe to say I would have had better luck. One of the nice things about working with big companies, like among other things, not only do they pay on time and not only is it very standardized, once you're in, you're sort of in. But they have just a crazy number of people, right? So, so you know, I do a lot of work with Cisco, and Cisco is just sort of infinitely large as far as the individual freelancer is concerned. Because you know, I don't know how many thousand. I mean, they have just in their Jerusalem office where I am, like probably a week or two every month. Um, they have what, like a thousand something people. And as long as I keep coming in with new courses that is the people haven't seen yet, then I can just sort of keep recycling through that. And now I'm starting to deal with other places that they they have in the world as well. So. You know, a few large companies, and you're sort of set for life. In fact, I met someone from Florida, um, and he does OpenStack training. I said, oh, and is Cisco a big client of yours? He said, Cisco is the only client for my training company. Like, it's like four oh, wow. or five people, <laughs> right? And their, their entire, 100% of their business model is, we will just go around the world selling to this one company. Mm. Yeah, I've done Cisco, too. It's funny. They do a lot of training, <laughs> obviously. Right. Right. Well, they're, they're big. And uh, again, they sort of this is part of their ethos. I think they want to give their people training. At the same time, some of these big companies do have rules for who can get in the door. And then I'm finding that some of them have sort of grandfathered me or some of them have just been sort of nice to me. But some of them have said, you know, the rule is you can't get more than 50 percent of your income from our company. And you have to have at least three people working for you and on and on and on. Like a few other rules that I wasn't aware of at all. But um, can definitely be an impediment for someone who wants to get in the door there, which is where I think some of these existing training companies have an advantage, right? Because they can basically act as an umbrella mm -hmm. and then 
bring you in and they do have that number of people. They're not just working with one company. The problem is, of course, that the training companies typically take 50% or more of whatever they're billing at. So if somebody were new to this, would you recommend that they go with the training company first? Because it sounds like that's the way both of you went. Or would you recommend that they go out on their own and see what they can drum up first? Or should they do both? It's hard to do both because the training company will get really ticked if you're sort of competing with them, right? Even if Uh they don't sign you on an uncompete and even on, on, and on, like they don't want their individual trainer to be talking to a company at the same time as they are talking to a company. Right. Or even like if they're like, there's one training company that I spoke to in the U.S. where we just decided it wasn't going to work out, even though they're really nice and great and everything. And they said, look, if we bring you somewhere, you will not be allowed to talk to them. Um, and so we'd have to talk about sort of like which companies do I talk to or not, but what if it's all potential? Mm-hmm. Look, what I, t- what I told some of my coaching people is I have this little coaching program for trainers and now it's two people, so it's very small, right? And I told them both, you can sort of go in two directions. You can go for the um, long-term model, which is do the training on your own. And that's going to be, you know, higher reward, but longer time to get into it. It might take three, four, five months for you to build up a reputation, go to enough meetups, give enough talks, put enough stuff online, convince enough companies to hire you. Uh, so, so going with a training company is going to be faster money and easier money, but it's less money and less of your own brand that you're building up. Right. And so you have to sort of balance out what's, what's important to you. There are many developers and many trainers even who have no interest whatsoever in dealing with the business side of it, right? They just want to show up and do the training. And so for them, if that, you know, if that's you, go with a training company for crying out loud. All that's true. I agree with all that. And there's one thing I would add, which is that I started out through, you know, I went to a train the trainer class a couple times. In fact, I think I went to two or three of them. And I don't know if I would have what I'm getting at is like, are you good at it? So having gone through an actual trainer program so long ago, I don't remember how much it helped me. You know, because there's one thing to know your thing, like no Python or no responsive web design or or whatever. It's quite another thing to be able to teach it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you know you're good, I would tend to lean toward, you know, I'm just more entrepreneur, entrepreneurial mindset. I would tend to lean more toward that. But it's more, it's riskier. It's risk reward type of thing. I would tend to lean toward that. But um, if you are, if you're just really good at, like react or something you need to do something to get better at teaching it if you don't know you're already great at it so i would probably start off with you know free webinars and get a feel for how to deliver the here i am assuming you're going to be doing remote i think most people probably end up doing remote training because it's more conducive to gaining a larger market it's not as good like i think i've always felt like I did a much better job in person trainings, but it's, you know, it's obviously a lot more complicated, especially if you have to fly around. If you're just like, oh, I'm a total god at React, that's great, but you need to get good at teaching it. So there's two aspects to it. Yeah, this this is known in the education biz as pedagogical content knowledge. So <laughs> right. So so there's so there's content knowledge, which is being really good at like the technical stuff. And there's pedagogical content knowledge, which is knowing how to teach that content. And those are two different skills. So like I actually spoke with a head of training, Cisco training in Shanghai at some point. And he basically said, we have a lot of people who know how to teach and a lot of people who know the technology and very few people who know both. And that's the sweet spot where if you can figure it out, then you're pretty much set. 
And it's also something, it's a skill that you have to constantly work on. Like I'm constantly sort of looking for stories that I can tell that will help to drive a point home or constantly looking for examples and constantly looking, especially for exercises. Like that's something that I really like, I spend a lot of time thinking about how I'm going to get people to practice and understand things. And over the years, my exercises have definitely gotten better. And each one has sort of taken on nuances where I say, you have to do X and Y and Z. And I say those things as part of the specification because I know where they're going to get messed up. And I know that's going to force them into a corner that they're going to have to think in a new way. And so it's not just a matter of, well, I want them to learn how to do loops. So I'll just have them like count from one to 10. Like you want to make it a little more sophisticated so they'll both enjoy it and learn something more out of it. Yeah, that's a great point. I, I recently watched a video training. It was paid one. I paid to watch it uh, from, f- I think it was Front End Masters or something. Mm-hmm. And I was so infuriated by some of the videos are great. They're, the quality is really good. But I was infuriated by one of the teachers because he was a classic show off, classic developer show off with, you know, like, oh, look how cool I am. I'm, you know, I'm using, he's like, coding in Emacs and he had, you know, he was using all of this really sophisticated, brand new uh, syntax that was completely beside the point of the thing that he was trying to teach. So he's getting all these questions from the audience about what's that thing over there? And he's like, oh, you know, don't pay attention to that. That's the new ES6 form, the spread operator or whatever. I'm like, I'm like, <laughs> so don't use it. <laughs> yeah. I was like, you're a jerk, dude. Like you're a terrible teacher and you're just trying to show. I was so angered by this. And the guy was an amazing developer. I mean, really amazing, but he was an awful teacher. And it's not, it wasn't just the, um, it wasn't just his attitude. It was also the, his examples like that Ruben just brought up. They were utterly confusing. I mean, just no, no way to penetrate. Uh, into what was going on. I mean, he's obscuring the thing he was trying to teach and having great examples, having great stories. I'm like crazy about how I'll name my variables. When I, when I type up a, a code example, try to, I do my best to make it a hundred percent clear which values are arbitrary and which ones are like keywords. So, you know, like I'll always use like my var or my phone numbers or something that is obviously not built into JavaScript or PHP or Ruby so that it's clear which things you can replace with whatever you want and which things are required by the framework of the language. And, you know, not being, I mean, beating a dead horse, but like there's, there's just a huge difference and you get better and better at it. You need to keep at it. And uh, if you do, then the information, if you get better at it, then the community, the information you're trying to communicate will actually stick and people will, I mean, people can really feel the difference. Like people will come up to me after stuff that I, that went well and they'll just be like, man, every question I had, as soon as I had it, you answered it. And the code examples were amazing. And, and, uh, you know, I think it's important to do really, really, you know, like Ruben said, you need to use real examples, but I still think you need to keep them as simple as possible so that what you're trying to, that the thing you're trying to illustrate is not obscured by some unrelated complications that are just going to send a Q&A down the, down the gutter. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Absolutely. Um, I mean, look, just today after I finished teaching, so I did a full day class today, <laughs> finished it up, and afterwards this guy came over to me and said, listen, I have this problem at work. So we talked about 20, 30 minutes. I came up with a solution for him. And I said, you know, I really want to use this in exercises in the future. I obviously won't name your company. I won't like say exactly what it is. But this is just such a fantastic example that pulls together a few things. Is that okay? He was like, oh, yeah, please you know, go ahead and use it. 
And I don't know exactly when I'll use it, but I definitely will because it really emphasizes the necessary points. And keeping your eyes open for that and constantly sort of changing and taking people's feedback into account also. Another thing, like I, I used to use a lot of slides and I still have slides, but over the years, I've used my slides less and less, assuming people are sort of watching me like one eye on the slides and one eye on me as I'm doing tons of live coding. And I've started to get some pushback on that. Just in the last few weeks, people saying, you know, you're going a little fast. It's hard to keep track of things. Can you point to the slides more? Where are you? So I realized, okay, I, I think I might have sort of gone too far in one direction. I need to sort of pull it back a little bit. And I'm constantly sort of changing your technique in response to what people are saying um, is, is, I think, a key aspect as well. And making clear to the training manager you're doing this. Because again, they are your customer, basically, right? If they get good feedback, and if you know they can basically sell your course and use their use use their budget on you, they will. So you want to make sure that you're in tune with what their needs are. Ruben, how much remote training do you do, if any? Uh, basically, Cisco asked me to start doing that. They're like, "Well, you know, we have all these people in Europe. Now I probably do like I don't know one course, like a four day course every five to six weeks. So it's not all the time, but it's a, a growing amount. It's it, I agree with what you said before." It's not the same feeling, not for the instructor, not for the participants. I personally don't feel it's quite as effective. I think over time, I mean, because Cisco uses WebEx, their thing, I actually have grown to be impressed by WebEx. I, I, I'm learning how to use it better and better. And I'm definitely using some techniques for making it better. But at the end of the day, I mean, if people in your own classroom are going to be checking email and Facebook, twice as many people are going to be doing that when you're teaching remotely. Right. Well, the other thing is, is that I've done in person and I've given remote conference talks and remote webinar webinars and what have you. And it's just different to be able to walk up to somebody's machine and sit down next to them and kind of pair program with them for a minute to get them through to the point that they need to be at in order to get whatever they need to get. Very true. And yeah, I also believe that people engage more if you're there personally, either because they don't want to be rude and get caught checking Facebook while you're walking by or because you're actually there. And so they can actually just pipe up and say, Hey, what about this? And you you know, it feels like you're present. Right. I mean, there's also online. I think people definitely see it as much more remote. And even though I I constantly, constantly saying in my class, like you have questions, they think not clear, like people are more likely to say something if you're there in person Mm -hmm. than if they're remote. If not, they'll be like, Oh, I'll I'll read through the slides later. I'll read through these. I'm not going to bother them now. It just, there, there seems like there's more of a barrier for sure. Um, yeah. That I mean, said, that's it. I feel like I'm reaching people that I could not reach otherwise. So, you know, it's a trade off. Sorry, Johnny. Yeah. No, in person doesn't scale, but it's way better. And, it, it, you know, there's completely different social mores for an in person type of thing. Plus, you get all of the body language feedback. You can just see when someone's getting frustrated, but maybe not asking a question. And, I don't know. I, I've even had situations in larger classes where I see people sitting next to each other, helping each other, like one person's more advanced than the other. And they're just kind of leaning over and helping. And they don't, you know, that would never happen online uh, where it's, it's so much different. It's so much better. I think it's a higher value thing. You can probably charge a lot more. I know you can charge a lot more for an in-person thing, uh, but it just doesn't scale that great. So, um, you know, you need to be Unless you live in a big city, you need to be into traveling and all, all of the mm-hmm. shenanigans that go along with that. Right. In terms of like pairing and helping each other, I'm constantly telling people in my courses, like I, I'm not up to the point where I'm going to mandate it. Like even though I probably should, but but I say to them, please 
pair when you're doing the exercises. And I even tell them, like, I know programmers generally hate doing it, but I'm telling you, I've seen like the results. The people who pair in my classes when they're doing exercises, regardless of their relative levels, they get way more out of it. And so like in every course, there'll be one pair, two pairs, and I'll see, I'll see they're having the discussion, they're learning. I mean, we can go through all sorts of, you know, educational theory mumbo jumbo, but like, it's true. It really, really works. Yeah. And WebEx allows that, right? Like you can break them into little rooms. You can. I haven't tried that yet. That's something I'm going to maybe try in my next course. Um, just sort of see how it works. Uh, my most recent one actually, like <laughs> talking about getting feedback. So, so, oh, here's, here's another thing you can do. Like, so, so as I said, I do a lot of training with Cisco and the training managers are always asking me, keep your ear to the ground. If there's something new that you can offer, then please let us know. Right. So big companies, again, they're always looking, the training managers are looking to satisfy the developers. And if they can offer new stuff and if you can offer new stuff to them, you're in. So I came in a few months ago and said, how about intro to Python for non-programmers? Now for me, I like, I thought, Pardon the ego trip here. I thought this was a stroke of genius, right? Because <laughs> there are more non-programmers than programmers. So, like, if I can get that sold to a company with hundreds of thousands of employees, I've totally got it made. So here's the thing. Like, non-programmers who see this, they're like, I am going to be able to program. And they come in with, guess what? Zero background. That requires different thinking, different training, different examples. And so the feedback I got from my first time doing this was, oh, my God, what was he thinking? That was way too fast. So, okay, you know, I ate a fair amount of crow. I look through what I'm going to do. And the next time I do this, it's going to be scaled down a lot more with a lot more very small, concrete examples. And hopefully it'll do better. So I guess the next question I have is how much preparation goes into a single course or series or whatever you call it. My general estimate is that for the first time that I do a course, like if it's totally brand new, for every full day, I'm probably doing three to four days of preparation. Mm -hmm. Then after I do it once and I eat crow or I, or, or I realize that it needs some tweaking, then it's probably another handful of days, but spread out over the next few times that I do it. And after I've done a course like five, six, seven times, then the maintenance and improvement is incremental. Yeah, exact same here. Same thing here. So, but Ruben, I'm curious about how evergreen the content is because one of the things that uh, i believe is true is that there are so many fads and mm -hmm. people just you know they only care about keeping up to date with the latest thing and they maybe just want to learn enough about it to know whether or not they should really learn it you know like you could do a list a mile long of like you know i don't know docker react angular ember <laughs> gulp you know <laughs> Webpack, you know, blah, 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 blah. It's changing. Constantly. Oh, you crazy JavaScript people. Yeah. Right. So, you know, ES6. Yeah. There's just some, everything's constantly changing. So what have you found in terms of the longevity of a course or uh, a particular expertise uh, so that you can kind of avoid that flavor of the month issue? So I've fortunately been dealing with a lot of sort of base fundamental technology. So like Python, Git, Postgres, right? So in those cases, I tend to focus a lot on fundamentals and a lot less on the sort of newer, cooler stuff. That said, so I'm working on now, of course, on data science in Python. And for that, I need new stuff. And I'm sure there are going to be something there that, are, that don't work as well. And what I've done is I can think about two years ago, I finally decided that I need to organize myself much better. And I broke each of my courses into a lot of different presentations. I use Keynote. So I probably now have, like, for my Python courses, 
plural, 50, 55 different presentations. And so when I learn something, reading a blog or someone asks me a question in class, I will go to that particular presentation and change it, edit it, improve it. And so keeping it sort of modularized in that way has allowed me to sort of incrementally grow each of them. And if I find that a certain presentation gets too big, then I break it into smaller ones. And that means that, like, again, the initial startup cost is very high. But it means that over time, I'm constantly, every week, every month, I'm making some change somewhere to some presentation. Does it happen often to you that there's like a major version upgrade that invalidates a bunch of older material? You know, like, you know, whatever, Python has, it's probably not. And the things that you mentioned, Git, Python, and Postgres, probably not. Yeah, not so. I mean, like, Python had the whole two to three thing. So almost all, which is like basically PR disaster and interesting, like to talk about. So what I do is I put more and more Python three stuff into my slides. And that's basically for people to know if you're using Python three, this is how it works. The fact is, I think I've had two classes so far in the last six years where anyone used Python three to the, re the rest are all using Python two. So for them, like, it's still a sort of academic curiosity or interesting to hear about, and I can mention it. And so over time, like, I, I have time basically to react to this. Mm -hmm. But if yeah, it were a major change, then I'd, I'd sort of be, yeah, I'd have problems, yeah. Yeah, the, I guess for me, it's like a cautionary tale for people listening. If It's something to think about when you're picking what you want to. If you're going to do training and go down that path, you really want to think about uh, how long this particular thing could potentially last because if it's something that's super volatile it's going to be a lot of upfront work like ruben said and you, you know you get no leverage out of it because you have mm -hmm. to change the thing all the time so when i see people that are you know teaching training classes on like react for example which i'm going to be doing uh later in like sort of mid 2016 is that where we're coming up on wow uh, <laughs> something like that yeah. yeah yeah it's it's not a great choice you know, I, I don't think it's actually a very good long-term choice. I just, I, I just wanted to, you know, get really good at it. I wanted to put the materials mm -hmm. together. I wanted to create this stuff. It was more selfish on my part. It's not really that I learn better when I'm teaching. So I wanted to, I wanted to take that approach. hundred percent true. I by the way, you learn so much by teaching. Business. Yeah. Big time. Yep. Look, I, I was, I was asked by a company to do a course in Garrett, which is this, um, Git code review system. That people in the open source world, like if you work on Android, you know about it. So actually, I guess maybe you know about it, Jonathan. But like most people know about GitHub, maybe GitLab, maybe Bitbucket or Stash. But like you hear, they hear about Garrett and like, what? What are you talking about? So a company really wanted me to do Garrett training. I said, really? You need this? Yes, yes, yes. We desperately need this. So I gave Garrett training and I put my all into this thing and I upgraded. I did everything we just talked about. It's like this day long course in Garrett. And the, End result was everyone coming out of my course knew Garrett cold and hated it. Like, just <laughs> loathed the thing. And so <clears throat> the surveys at the end of the course were like, did you learn a lot? Yes. Will this help you in your work? No. And so they came <laughs> and said, like, what the heck is going on here? So we did some talking and basically figured out that we're just going to focus on Git. And a number of, like, at the end of the second day of the Git training, I will talk about a few different options for code review one of which is Garrett. But we basically just pulled the rest of the Garrett courses for the, for the next, over the, they were scheduled for the next six months because it was clear it was just not worthwhile. 
So yeah, I've, I've also had my share of, you know, as it were, dead-end technologies or things requiring a lot of revision. That said, I just yesterday or two days ago was talking to someone about Garrett. I was able to speak with some authority about it because I have this experience. So, you know, it does come in handy sometimes. Now, one thing you keep bringing up, I'm going to change topics a little bit, is the survey at the end. Uh, now, I gave a survey at the end of the time that I did it over at Career Builder, which sounds like a bigger company, I think, than it really is, or at least the division I was working with. <laughs> But I don't know that I got a lot of great information out of the survey that I sent to them. So what do you ask them in that survey? So in almost no cases do I do the survey. They do the survey. Oh, really? Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I know when I was dealing with a training company, they would always do surveys. But a number of companies said, you are not allowed to do your own survey. In fact, Cisco is one of those. In the contract or in the purchase order, it says, you are not allowed to do your own survey. We will take care of that for you. Okay. They asked so, me for a survey. So. Oh, wow. So like, and, and they ask these very, very like big company sort of questions. Like, you know, I had enough time to learn the subject matter. The exercises added value to my learning. <laughs> the learning objectives were met. Like, so, so rate that one, two, three, four or five. Right. And, and so problem number one is getting people to fill out the survey. Mm -hmm. So I had this one course. Oh, it was a Garrett course, actually, right? So I'm going to beat up on Garrett <laughs> some more, all you Garrett folks in the audience. So I did a Garrett course. There were four people. No, there's six people signed up. The day before, two of them dropped out, so it was four people. This was, by the way, an online remote course with WebEx. I show up in the morning to teach. Two people are there. We take the morning break. One of them goes away. So there's one person left. I answer his questions. I say, is everything great? He says, yes. End of the course. I find out the survey was filled up by one person, and you know who that was, the guy who stuck around, who rated me really low. Oh, <laughs> I, was like, <laughs> I was like, you got a private tutoring, what are you talking about? But the people at the company were, were very upset. Why? Because I didn't get more people to, to fill out the survey. So from their perspective, you know, a high N is really important. So one, you have to get them to fill it out. Two, you want to make it clear to them, the more comments you give, and that's where the real value is from my perspective. The numbers are important to like my client. If uh -huh. I get high numbers, they will bring me back. From my perspective, the numbers are far less important than the sentences people write about what was good and what was bad. And there's always room for that. And that like, for me, that's the gold. Like, and whatever I can get out of that, I will almost always use it in the next course to improve things. Mm -hmm. um, I'll tell you like, even where I was today, like they had their own survey and the training manager came in to collect it. And before she left with it, I, I rifled through them and I sort of made sure I took out the bad ones. No, no, I, um, like I made sure to read what people had said, uh -huh. um, so that I could, so that I could figure it out. And there's no reason for them to hide it, right? I just want to make right. sure it doesn't get lost in corporate bureaucracy. Right. Cause you want to see the resulting whatever. Yeah. Huh. I mean, the, like at the end of the day, like the survey is the most important thing because the survey is how the training manager is rated by their bosses. Right. So if you have a good course, then the rate and the ratings are high, they look good and they'll bring you back. And like, I, I hate to say like the learning is incidental, but you know, we were sort of assuming that if there was good learning, then they will fill that in the, in the, in the, you uh -huh. know, in the survey. Yeah. Um, oh, you know what? I'll also say I have done a survey before the course. So it's very common. I might mention this before in the podcast. Like it's very common if I talk to a company. And I'll say, my Python course takes four days. And they'll say, our people are all smarter than average. Right? All <laughs> sure. It's a Lake Wobegon effect for, for, for corporate training, right? <clears throat> all of our programs are smarter than average. They only need three days. And then this is like tug of war. It doesn't matter how smart they are. They, they need to take time to like learn the material and go through things. And so 
sometimes what will happen is if they say they only need an advanced course, I'll say, tell you what, great, let me send them a survey of what they know. And then I'll be able to really pinpoint what it is they know and make the training right. And so on no small number of occasions, they have insisted I teach them an advanced Python class. I give my pre-survey and ask them, how comfortable are you on a scale of one to five with? I give them 20 different topics. And based on that, I know I will give my basic course, call it advanced. I get high ratings afterwards and everyone's happy. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. I've actually hardly ever gotten server results back. Uh, I can't even think of one occasion where I have, but I I do exactly what Ruben just said, which is whenever possible, even if I'm just giving a regular talk, like a strategy talk to executive types or management, I'll push to be able to send out a uh, Google form to the attendees in advance to ask them questions about what their technical level is with X, Y, and Z. Do they own a smartwatch? What smartphone do they use? Uh, Have they ever paid for anything with their phone? You know, like, or have they ever created responsive web design? You know, how, what's their skill level with JavaScript, CSS, HTML, uh, all those things, because it makes it, it makes it so much easier to, to, uh, just on the, you don't have to change your slides or anything, but just change the way you're going to talk about things. If you know more about what the audience uh, is already in their head so that you can build on what's already in their head. And, you know, pick the right stories, if you will, uh-huh. to, uh, to try and communicate the material. 100%. I always ask people, uh, like, I start off by going around and getting people's names, and um, especially if it's a multi-day course, and I have a like, chance of remembering it, as their names, also what their background is, like what languages they know. And then I can say, like, if I know the language, I can make analogies. I can say this in, you know, Python, whatever, is like such and such in the other language. And I feel like that helps to also make the connection. Mm-hmm. Also, yeah. it allows me to make you know, cheap shots at the other languages, which is always <laughs> good for a laugh or two. The other thing Sorry. I wanted to go after is why, why do they negotiate three days versus four days? Is, the, the, is it the time of their employees or do you charge a day rate or how does that work? There are basically two ways to charge. Um, one is per day and one is per person. Uh-huh. And what I've done typically in Israel, China, Europe is charge a day rate. Okay. But I've been told, and this might be a cultural thing, it might just be the people I've talked to, when I spoke to people in the U.S. about doing training, I quoted them a per-person rate. At the end of the day, it comes out to roughly the same. But companies, like, companies have two reasons not to want to have a longer course. Uh, one is they, they do have a budget at the end of the day, and they don't want to spend more money. And the other is they basically see their developers as, like, not doing anything for those, or, like, like the training is good, but not that good, right? We don't want to take them out of <laughs> And so if they can avoid having people out of work for a long period of time, they'll do that. So like this week, this week I'm doing, you know, advanced Python and it's two days. And I told them, you want three. And they were like, no, 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 we only have time for two. So I spoke to the manager yesterday afternoon. He was like, you seemed a little rushed and people were complaining it was going too fast. I said, we need three days. He was like, okay, in the future we'll do three days. (laughs) (laughs) I typically do a, um, an up to X number of students thing. So I'll give a flat rate for up to like 30 students or a flat rate for up to a hundred students yeah. because I don't want to, I don't, first of all, if I have more than say 30 students for a given topic, I'm going to need an assistant yeah. uh, to run around. So my costs obviously would go up if I was going to do that. Uh, but generally, or, or I'll say if it's going to be over a hundred, uh, if it's going to be over 30, like say a hundred students, then it's not going to be as workshoppy. It's going to be a little bit more like, uh, a conference talk, you know, mm-hmm. so like more of a presentation than, you know, everybody having their laptops out and me running around and, and checking their code. 
or the price goes way up and I get some assistance. Uh, but yeah, I don't want to, I don't want to get in that situation that Ruben had with Garrett where like one dude shows up for the class. And so I get a hundred bucks. Right. So, cause I, you know, if I have to prepare for the thing, especially if I'm flying there, then it's like up to them to sell the seats. And, you know, especially if it's direct to consumer type of thing, like I, I went to, I did one relatively in the recent past at a community college in Wisconsin and they opened it to the public and they sold tickets basically. I think it was free for students, but they sold tickets to the general public. And I was like, you can have up to a hundred people. I'll deliver it like this. It'll be eight hour full day with lunch breaks and stuff. And, uh, you know, I don't know if I, I think maybe let's say I charge 10 grand, something like that. And so it's on them to pack the room. They could actually make some money. That's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, I, if I charge you a day rate, then I don't care how many people show up to some degree. I mean, one person was really annoying. But, um, but like I've had sometimes where the company will, will, will say, you know what, it's, you know, we like you or it's important enough. And if there are only four people who show up, they're okay with that. Not thrilled, but they're okay with it. Mm-hmm. Um, I do put a maximum number. I, uh, I, I've played games with sort of how I do it. I think I even still now have different, different policies with different companies just because I haven't sort of undone that. So in some cases, I just give a rate and I say up to 20 people. There's some companies where I say this is the rate for up to 16 people. And if you want more than that, then there's an extra charge per person per day. And typically they'll see that and say, oh, well, we better do a second course rather than pay the extra money per day. Right. So, um, so I've, I've managed in some ways to sort of force them into doing two courses rather than one. There was one time, I think at HP, where like they were like, oh, we're only doing one course with this. And we must have had like 50 people in the room and it was so hot and it was so uncomfortable and no one enjoyed it at all. And like, you definitely need to put a maximum. Otherwise, it's just, it's just nonsense. Yeah. If you, if you've got code on the screen and you have 50 people in the room, you're in trouble. It's, yeah. You're going to go down in the weeds with just people. I mean, I've had nightmare scenarios where, you know, room with maybe 30, 40 people and, and there are multiple people who can't even get their dev environment set up. So like right out of the gate, <laughs> right out of the gate, you're behind schedule with something that should be easy, but they've got some wacky version of the OS on a machine that you're not used to. And, right. you know, yeah, I'm like, I don't know, Google it. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so it's, it's, that can be really tricky. Uh, in fact, that's my, you know, I don't know if this is relevant, but that's my number one issue with giving any training classes is if it's developer focused and it's not just HTML, CSS, JavaScript and starts to get complex with the particulars of what machine they're on, you know, like beyond a text editor, uh, it starts to get really weird and you have to do something in advance to ensure that they're going to have their machine set up before they get in the room. Otherwise you're in trouble. Yeah. What, what do you do for that? Cause I've heard different answers to that. Uh, it depends on the situation. Um, when I'm doing something like PhoneGap, which to do local development requires that you have at least Xcode, but preferably also the Android SDK set up. And heaven forbid if you're also doing Windows Phone development, because then you need Mac and a PC. So, uh, you know, so usually what I do is punt for something like that. I'll say we're going to use PhoneGap Build, which is a proprietary tool that is um, that is Adobe's, but there's a free tier that you can use and it's really cheap if you do want to pay for it whenever possible i try to do any compile stuff in the cloud for this react class i'm going back and forth about you know do i really get into how to set up your local environment i suppose i have to but i need to have a plan b in case people have unexpected configurations like if somebody shows up with a linux machine or a windows machine i won't know the first thing about either of those really so there there are ways that you can 
for development, use just included JavaScripts to do all the compilation in the browser, which you would never do in production, but it would at least allow me to teach the syntax and the concepts without getting down in the weeds of getting your machine set up with some kind of like automated workflow. So I, I really try to minimize, and I, it's a tough balance because you, you know, on the one hand, you want to see the people, okay, you know, React is awesome, check it out, but we've skipped over a really hard part, which is getting your machine set up. But, you know, it, it ever, really depends. On have you thought about using a VM or something? Uh, that would probably be an interesting idea, but maybe. I, I haven't seriously thought about it. I don't, but probably only because uh, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't have been appropriate for anything. Like, you know, maybe the phone gap stuff. But honestly, I think that um, for noobs that are getting started with something like phone gap, which is the majority of the classes I've taught. So that's the one I keep mentioning. If you're a web developer and you have to set up a local phone gap development uh, environment, you're not going to do it. You're going to hate it because it's it's you're all of a sudden you're into compiled code, which web developers traditionally have not grokked. You know, it's just not a develop. It's not a web developer thing. It's like refresh the browser. It's done. And getting making that leap to compiled code is I've found it's a really big one for people. And getting the machine set up is <laughs> such a nightmare. So I'm curious, um, are you teaching React in PhoneGap then? No, no. This is sort of a React is the first thing I've been excited about in mobile development in like five years. No, you this know, isn't like, React Native, well, it's React, right? It's both. Both React JavaScript, React JS and React Native. Okay. So it's kind of like the natural next step for web developer post PhoneGap. Mm-hmm. So I think PhoneGap is great for uh, enterprise apps that kind of thing. Uh, but it, if you're trying to do a, a B2C app that you're going to put in the app store, you're going to have a really hard time creating a, a really compelling phone gap interface uh, because, you know, there's so many apps in the app store and somebody's going to do a pure native. It's going to be slightly sexier. Uh, if you're just trying to get things done and get them done fast and have a shared code base, then phone gaps, obvious answer. So react has got this new approach where, you know, instead of write once run everywhere, it's learn once right everywhere, which I think is fascinating and super, mm. super interesting. And they are also, uh, they don't take an MVC approach, which I love because I never liked MVC. So <laughs> very, very excited about React. Yeah, they React native and native script. Now we're delving deep into deep tech, but they basically run on the JavaScript runtime that's in Safari on the Mac or on iOS and whatever it is on Android and uh, work over basically a bridge to all of the native stuff, all the native guts, which is really cool. And we've talked well, about the, nati- the native react stuff doesn't do that. React well, native? I suppose it react. It, it makes, it makes real components. Yes. And, yeah, yeah. But it wires it up through JavaScript and, and talks to the uh, Swift or objective C runtime through JavaScript bridge. The JavaScript is true. Yeah. That's, that's just like phone gap, but it does create native components. Yes, which it's native components, have. native views in your templates. Yeah. Very cool. cool. Yeah. It's way cool stuff. And if, if you're really deep into that tech, we've talked quite a bit about this, uh, with native script and react native on several shows and devchat.tv actually has a react native podcast. So go check oh, out cool. react native radio.com. And wow. you can get those episodes and start checking it out. There are 11 in the queue right now. It should be in iTunes and uh, super exciting stuff. Yeah, it's like I said, it's the first thing I've been excited about in front end development in like five years. 
Yep. Yeah, native script is very similar. Um, and I'm excited about that because I can do Angular on the on top of that. But. Wow. Well, I'm so out of it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm stuck, I'm stuck this stuff moves I... ahead so fast. It's but yeah. Anyway, so so back to training. So are there specific things that you should do in order to make your trainings just totally rock? Stories. Experience. Yeah, stories story. experience. Yeah. There is a point at which you are not like in order to educate, you have to also entertain. Mm-hmm. And that can come from right stories, experience, a lot of like so pointing to give them a thirty thousand foot view, right? Give them that perspective. That's going to take them years to gain on their own. Um, and then lots and lots and lots of practice. And they're going to like sweat and they're going to work hard. But I, I call that controlled frustration, right? Like, <laughs> right, right? Like, because better that they be frustrated in your classroom when you're there and can come around and help them and then go over it. Cause like every time I do a, a, the way I do exercises is they all do the exercise and then I do it, um, up in front of them and I show them different alternatives. I'm like, some people would do this. And, and you hear some people say, yeah, yeah, I did that. And I'm like, but this is wrong. Yeah, that's wrong for this reason. And we sort of go over it. And through several iterations, multiple iterations, we get to a version that I think is better. And then I show them even a few versions and that whole process of walking through it. Um, it's sort of like if you're in, in, you know, if you're in elementary or high school and taking a math class, you don't want the teacher to put the answer on the board. You want them to show you the process they use because it's that process that's key. Mm-hmm. And so all these things together and then just take lots of questions. Hope they'll ask lots of questions. Um, that's one of my big frustrations of teaching in China. No questions or very, very few compared to say Israel, which is like the other end of the spectrum where people are like attacking you. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I would say, yeah, I guess I I totally agree with all that. And I I would add that I would add a point about being nervous, which is (laughs) that you don't have to know everything. It's okay to be stumped by questions. Sometimes it's good. You could say, you know, somebody asks you a question that you don't know the answer to you say, well, I should probably know the answer to that, but I don't, but I'm sure we can figure it out right here in about 60 seconds. So showing them how to figure something out that you don't know the answer to is super beneficial. And uh, I think it lends a lot of, it relaxes you like crazy because you don't have to waffle around and pretend like, oh, the answer to that question doesn't matter. So that's why I don't know it. You know, like some, you know, you don't have to be the, some kind of like worldwide expert with, you know, that's what Google and Stack Overflow and all that other stuff is for to know all the millions of little details and showing them how to find the answer to something I think is, is super interesting and it'll relax you if you think, uh, or if you don't get embarrassed by not knowing something. It's, I would say, yeah, yeah, I totally agree. I mean, if someone asks me a question, I'm like, huh, I don't know. Let's try that. And sometimes I'll say, you know what? I can't figure it out here. Let me try to do that for homework and I'll try to get back to you the next day. Almost always that ends up being new slides or new demonstrations or new sections of my mm-hmm. course. Because if it's that interesting of a question, then it's probably someone else is going to have that question in future courses and they'll appreciate discussing it. All righty. Well, we've been uh, doing this for about an hour and 10 minutes. <laughs> so. <laughs> I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna head us into the picks. Uh, I know there's more to talk about, um, and if people have questions, go ahead and leave a comment on the webpage under the show notes, and uh, we'll see if we can uh, get back to those. You can also go to our topics GitHub repo and load an issue onto there, and uh, maybe if we get enough questions about this, then we'll treat it again. But let's do picks. Jonathan, do you have some picks for us? Uh, sure. I mentioned earlier, um, the front end master's course, 
And I think, uh, I mean, that might, that's competition for me at O'Reilly and it might be competition for Chuck too, but, um, I, I think it's really well done and, uh, I think it's really affordable and it's been, uh, it's very interesting the way they have done it. So I think there's two things that you could take away from it, you know, in the context of this episode. Uh, one is to look at the course material and see if it's anything that you might be interested in. And I would recommend that it, it's probably worth the money because the quality is there. Uh, but the other thing is to sort of see how they do it. Uh, so, um, there's, there's, uh, one on React that, uh, Henrik Yortag did. And uh, I, I think it's a really good example of, of how to do a training. And it's a, it's an interesting hybrid where they actually deliver the training in a room with live students who do Q and A. There's also a chat room where they take questions during the live class. And then the recording is what gets posted on the site. So it's an interesting hybrid between the two approaches where, you know, people are throwing random, a lot of people are throwing random questions at the instructor, which is, I found super helpful as someone who was watching the recording after the fact. And I think it's good from a direct uh, teaching standpoint and also from the meta, meta standpoint. If you're thinking about putting together training, it's very well done. Yeah, as far as them being a competitor of mine, they're a sponsor. They're the platinum sponsor for JavaScript Jabber. <laughs> okay, so maybe. And and we've had so we love them. <laughs> we've we've had Mark Grabansky on JavaScript Jabber, so oh, okay. uh, have well, my a very apologies. very warm relationship with them. Okay, my apologies for not knowing that, but uh, oh, I suppose fine. it makes my it makes my uh, it makes my recommendation that much stronger, which I I didn't know I was uh, patting a sponsor on the back. No, it's it's all good, Ruben. Okay, so I've got uh, two picks. One is, if you already mentioned uh, webinars, so I did a webinar on technical training about that topic uh, in October. So if people are interested in hearing more about what I have to say on the subject, uh, I'll put the uh, link in the show notes to the uh, webinar I did where I talked about, I called it pedagogy, logistics, and business. So it's a little bit of educational theory, a little bit of how do you organize things, and a little bit about what we talked about here today, like the business side of things both from your perspective as a freelancer and from the company perspective. Um, the second thing is I was just listening today to uh, a podcast that we've mentioned many times on the show, NPR's Planet Money, and they mentioned this thing called a Birkin bag. I was like, <laughs> That was such a funny episode. And it was it's fantastic, though, because it talks about how you have this super crazy luxury handbag, like a pocketbook. It costs $60,000. And what do they do? They make it really scarce. And by making it scarce and expensive, they make it more popular. And I was thinking, isn't that what we're always telling people to do in terms of being a freelancer, right? You know, you can be unavailable and raise your rates and it'll just bring in more business. So not only did I find it uh, amusing and interesting and about something that I know literally nothing about. I mean, I'd never even heard of these things before, but uh, I think it's a, a good uh, a good lesson for people trying to price things who are worried that by being expensive, they'll price themselves out of the market. Awesome. Uh, I've got a couple of picks. Uh, the first one is where I got my wife's Christmas present from. It's fathead.com. Uh, they, they, uh, they have these wall decals. And so, uh, she's, she really is kind of crazy about Maleficent. And so I got her a wall decal. It's six foot six tall and about four and a half feet wide. And, uh, it's Maleficent and you stick it on the wall. And uh, it's awesome. Uh, they have a whole bunch of them for Star Wars, for various sports teams, a lot of Disney stuff. So if you're into any of that and you're looking for something that's a little bit unique, 
then check that out. I've also, since I've, I'm kind of doing videos, I'm looking at doing some webinars and things like that. I have these closet doors behind me and I'm seriously thinking about getting some of those decals to put on the door just to give it a little bit more flavor. But, uh, anyway, it, it was really cool and a lot of fun. So, uh, I'm going to pick that and that's, that's all I've got to pick. So quick reminder, go check out freelance remote conf. It's at the end of February. Uh, if you're into JavaScript, uh, this probably comes out right before JS Remote Comp, so you have to go buy a ticket now. Ruby Remote Comp's in March. iOS Remote Comp's in April. I'm doing a React Remote Comp sometime in May or June. I don't remember. So anyway, go check all that stuff out. Calls for proposals are open for all of those except for JS, and the freelance one is probably closing soon if I don't fill all the spots with people I've invited to speak. So if you want to speak, go check those out too. And yeah, that's all the self-promotion I'm going to do here today. We'll go ahead and wrap up the show. If you want, uh, Reuven, before we go, though, I know you're, you've been doing the uh, coaching for this kind of thing. Uh, so real quick, do you want to tell people how they can find that? Sure. So if they go to my website, learner.co.il uh, slash coaching, that is a description of the coaching program that I've started. I have two people doing it right now. I'm hoping to build it up over time. And the idea is work with people who want to do check training. And the idea is to talk about strategy, talking to companies, going to them. And then I'm hoping to, over time, also build up people's presentation skills, how uh, like sort of review videos of them. Um, and I'm also starting to work on a book about how to do technical training, um, all these topics. And so people in the coaching program are helping me um, sort of, at this point, sort through the table of contents and the plans for it. Anyway, if you are interested in training, uh, let me know. And I think the coaching program could help you. And if you're not interested in the program, but doing training, I'd love to hear from you anyway. All right. Well, with that, I guess we'll wrap up and we'll catch y'all next week. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.